Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Okay, what I want to talk about is really goes to how it is that we navigate tradition and change, because that's like my personal issue. So we always only teach ourselves, right? So um, I want to share a text with you from um, a Hasidic uh, thinker who's Rav Mordechai Yosef of Izbitz. He lived in the beginning of the 19th century in Poland. And um, he was part of the Polish revolution of Hasidut, where Hasidut moved from a folklorish sort of movement to a more elitist style movement um, in the beginning of the uh, 19th century in Poland. Okay? So um, what he talks about, and we're going to do the background because we need to see the passages in the Torah itself that he's working off of. But what he talks about, you know, in the desert, um, the people uh, traveled from one encampment to another, uh, and there was a hierarchy of leadership. Of course, Moses was the, was the prime leader, and following the word of God, according to the way the Torah tells the story, they traveled according to God's word, and they camped according to God's word. Right? According to the word of God, they traveled, and according to the word of God, they, they camped. Everything was according to the word of God in the desert. That's the way the story is told. It's sort of a direct... Right? Today, we sort of wander around, and if you're religiously inclined, it's like, what does God want from me? But in, in the, the model of that type of existence in the desert is that there's an immediacy that people know what God wants, Right? God tells them, so to speak, what, when to stop and when to go. Okay? But in, in addition to Moses, there was also the tribal leaders. Right? The, tri- the tribes, the children of Israel divided into tribes, and each tribe had its tribal head. Right? And um, the story that we're going to tell here is um, there was a conflict which is just underneath the surface of the, pa- of the passages that we're going to read, a conflict arose between Moshe and the Nisi'im and the tribal leaders. And first we're going to look at the, at the passages in the Torah, which don't seem to talk of such a conflict, but underneath the surface you can, you can see it if you read the text carefully. And then we're going to see the... Um, what the Me'ashiloach, Rav Mordechai Yosef Ishbitz how he fleshes out this conflict and how this conflict was resolved. And this is not only a question for biblical scholars of, of trying to see how a conflict was resolved in the desert thousands of years ago, but it may form for us a model of resolving similar conflicts, not only between individuals and institutions, but people, when a person feels conflicted inside themselves, how those type of conflicts can be if not resolved, at least how they can be navigated. Right? And, this, and that's why I'm looking now to the Torah and to the Hasidic interpretation of what's happening as a guide to that. All right? That's all the introduction. Okay? You with me? This is what we're going to do now. Okay? All right, so what I want to start, I'm just going to read the passages in the Torah so we can see what we're talking about. Right? I'll read them in English. You can look at the Hebrew if that's, uh, if that's good for you. Okay? When Moses finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed and consecrated it and all its furnishings. He also anointed and consecrated the author and all its utensils. Okay, so the Mishkan, the, the tabernacle in the desert, right, was completed. Okay? Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of families who were the tribal leaders in charge of those who were counted, made offerings. 
they brought as their gifts before the Lord six covered carts and 12 oxen, an ox for each leader and a cart for every two. The Torah is going into uh, a lot of detail. And we're going to we're gonna have to look at why the Torah tells us this. Okay? They were presented before the tabernacle. These they presented before the tabernacle. The Lord said to Moses, accept, that, accept these from them, that they may be used in the work of the tent of meeting. Give them to the Levites as each man's work requires. It was the Levites in the desert, their job was to schlep the Mishkan. Okay? It was hard work. You can imagine the weather was pretty much like today, right? Again, I was like surprised. I just came from New York. And it was like 70 degrees and pouring rain. No, actually, it was like 52, like in pouring rain. I come here, and it's like this is like a whatever. This is much more like Sinai. Okay? So they had to schlep the, the Mishkan, all the parts, the gold-plated beams, right? It was heavy, all right? So the oxen and the carts were used for that purpose. Okay, he gave two carts and four oxen to the Gershonites, and then he divided it up according to the, to the labor that they had to perform. Okay, so that's the story that's told here. Okay? Now, if we look at it carefully, there are a couple of questions that emerge. If we look at this text very carefully, okay, um, the first thing is the the tribal leaders. The Torah goes into detail, which seems to be excessive detail, in in describing the leaders. I want to just read this in Hebrew for a second. It says, Vayakrivu nisiei Yisrael, it's a second verse, so it's verse number two. Vayakrivu nisiei Yisrael, rashei beit avotam, heim nisiei hamatot, heim haomdim al pkudim. And the leaders of Israel, right, it says that the heads of the families, it says, and they, they are the heads of the and the, those who are the tribal leaders, right? The heads of the families and the tribal leaders, right? And here it has, Rashi Beit Avotam, Heim Nisiyeh HaMatot, Heim HaOmdim Alapkudim, right? These are the tribal, these are the heads of the families, these are the heads of the tribes, right? It's like, just say the Nisiim, the heads of the tribes. But the heads of the families, these are the heads of the tribes, these are the people that were in charge of the census, of counting the people. Why go into all that detail? Right? When the Torah goes into detail describing something, it means that description is relevant for the narrative. Okay? So I just want to put that out there at this point. Okay? The next thing is, what did they bring? So they brought an offering. What did they bring? They brought six wagons and 12 oxen. Right? Six wagons for 12 oxen. How many tribal leaders were there? 12. Usually, if somebody brings an offering, they take responsibility for it themselves. So if, there, if 12 people brought six wagons, it means what happened? They had to talk to each other. It means two leaders had to talk to each other and say, we should bring some wagons, right? And okay, you do half, I'll do half. Right? There had to be some sort of collaboration that went on that the Torah isn't telling us about. It's like underneath, this is what I mean by underneath the surface, okay? So you have these leaders, and, you, and they're collaborating to bring something together, right? And then they bring, so they bring the six wagons, but yet they bring each one, they do bring then one ox each, right? They don't bring six oxen, right? They bring, then they bring one ox each, okay? The next thing is, the, the Hebrew is actually sharper, they bring their offering, and then it says in the end of um, verse 3, Vayakrivu otam hamishkan. And they brought them, how is it translated here? And they brought them, they presented before the tabernacle. But hamishkan before, or in front of, means that it was not admitted into the tabernacle. Right? So they bring it to the doorstep, so to speak, of the tabernacle. Right? What is that about? They haven't entered, right? And at this point, if we look carefully, Now God comes in and says, tells Moshe, accept it from them. What was until then? 
it seems that they were paused at the, end, at the threshold of the Mishkan. And God had to then instruct Moshe to accept it. It seems that Moshe, until that point, was not accepting it. They were waiting, right? There was this almost like a confrontation, you could say, right? With the heads of the tribes bringing this offering. It's like Moshe got up in the morning and he saw the, these, these oxen and, and, and wagons, right? And then God comes and says, accept it from them, right? And then, Mo, and then Moses accepts it, right? Now, I want to avail myself of Rashi, right? The, the basic commentator on, on Chumash, um, to fill out the picture for us a little bit, and then to look at Rav Mordechai Yosef of Ishbitz, okay? So Rashi says, the first Rashi, Heim Hamatot, these were the leaders of the tribes, right? So why, so he's going to deal with the question of why does the Torah go into such detail in describing the heads of the tribes? So he says, these were the officers appointed over them in Egypt, and they were beaten on account of them. As it says, the children of Israel, the officers of the children of Israel were beaten. The play on words is matot. A mateh means a tribe, but it's also a staff, right? Because the reason is that you lead the tribe with a staff, so the tribe is called a staff. But a mateh is, also, is a staff that you beat someone with as well. So the reason they're called Rashi HaMatot, who were the leaders in the desert? This is actually very important for um, understanding leadership. They were the ones that stood between the Egyptian taskmasters and the people. They, and they accepted the lashes of the Egyptians to protect the people. They were made the leaders. Okay. So that's so, so the Torah you, uh, reminds us that these leaders are the ones who suffered for the people in Egypt, right? And that characterizes them as compassionate people, okay? That's one thing, so that, that's one thing that we have to bring forth here, okay? And then, now I'm doing the next Rashi. Vayakrivu otam lefnei mishkan. See, the, the uh, English would be... Um, and they presented them in front of the Mishkan, Rashi says, for Moses did not accept them from their hands until he was instructed to do so by God. Okay? So he reads the text very carefully. It, it's at the threshold of the Mishkan. Moshe does not accept it. God needs to intervene and tell Moshe to accept it. So something's going on. Okay. Now, let's take a look at the Mashilah, right? At the words of uh, Rav Mordechai Yosef of Ishbitz, okay? This translation, I'll read the translation. This translation is my translation. I translated it, okay? So you have the original here and the translation, okay? They brought as their gifts before the Lord six covered carts and 12 oxen, an ox for, from each leader and a cart from every two, okay? Remember, we talked about the need for collaboration the two leaders bring one cart, okay? Okay. The tribal heads had great compassion towards the Levites who were bearing the heavy burden. Right, here's what happened. They looked out and they saw that the dissembled Mishkan had to be carried through the desert. It was heavy, and I'll add that it was hot, right? And they felt... Compassion, because that's who they are, right? These are the people who compassionately took the beatings that the Egyptians inflicted upon the children of Israel, and they stood in between. So they took the beatings. So they saw the fact that the Levites were going to have to suffer, right? Now, what is their response? Their response was not just to help them. That's not what happened. Yet they did not know what action to take. Right? The way he says it here, I'm looking at the Hebrew, okay? Ki be'emet hayalahem godel rachmanut. He probably said it in Yiddish, but I said rachmanus, right? Godel rachmanut al halavim. Hanosim sheisu masak veda. Right? The Levites who had to carry this heavy burden. 
This is very important. It gave them pause. They didn't know what to do. It's not like you see something and you rush to help. That's not what happened. They saw something that disturbed them and it gave them pause. That's very important. Okay? What gave them pause? They did not know what action to take since there was no word from God through Moses. Because the way of being in the desert, there's a mantra in the end of the book of Exodus. The last two parshiot is everything is kasher tziva Hashem et Moshe, as God commanded Moshe, as God commanded Moshe. Right? Everything in the Mishkan is very deliberate. Everything that has to do with the Mishkan is very deliberate. Any break of the structure of the hierarchy is, leads to death. Right? If you remember the story of the sons of, of Aaron, Right? They, they were too enthusiastic, right? And they died, right? People who step out of bounds, even if at, at, the, at the giving of the law, right? God tells Moshe, make sure the people don't rush up the hill because if anybody that rushes up the mountain is going to die, right? There are boundaries. The desert naturally is a place without boundaries. You probably know that better than me, right? You go out into the wilderness, there are no boundaries. That's why it's an obsession the Torah, when the people are moving through the desert, because you have to impose boundaries so that civilization doesn't fall apart. You have to hold it together. In Egypt, they were held together by Paro, right? Pharaoh held them together. They were slaves. And in the land of Israel, they were, being, they were held together by uh, political units, and, and they were settling places, and they were fighting wars, so they were being held together by the political necessities of living in the land of Canaan and conquering the land of Canaan, and it, it evolved into a monarchy, right? But the desert is this dangerous place of transition where there's no structures. So that's why the Torah is so obsessed with structures. Ishal machneu, ishal diglo. Everybody has to be where they belong, right? So they're used to hearing everything from God. So what gives them pause? They see a problem. The problem is the Levim are going to have to work really hard. And they want to help them. Well, who's going to help them? But what they would have expected in that mode of reality is that there would have been a word from God about what to do. There would have been, God would have told Moshe, tell the Nisiim to bring, 12, to bring um, wagons and oxen to help the Levium carry. Right? But that's not what happened. So that's what gave them pause. Okay. They didn't know what to do. Since there was no word from God through Moses, they were concerned that perhaps the Levites were in need of physical labor in order to purify their hearts. This is very Jewish. Okay? I, spent some time, I spent a little bit of time in India. The Indian way is like meditation, right, to purify yourself. It's very direct and very powerful. It's not only that, they have yoga and they have other things they have to do, right? So, but the, this is very Jewish in the assumption that there's a unity between body and soul, right? And what you do physically impacts upon you spiritually, right? It's not a competing area. It's one, it's the, you're an one organic being. So perhaps, why didn't God command the Israelites to help the Levites? Maybe the Levites need this work. Right? Maybe they have to actually do physical labor in order to purify themselves. Maybe. You can't know. Right? So maybe even though they have good intentions and they feel compassion, but maybe it's misplaced. Maybe they really have to do the work. Right? There was this really good book. You could read it. Two, it will take you two hours to read it if you like that type of stuff. It was an adventure book called Into Thin Air by a John Krakauer, anybody read it? It's about the trek to Everest. In, uh, you ever read it, Rosh No? no? It's, it's a fun read if you like hiking and stuff like that. So it's about the trek to Everest in um, 1996 when uh, a lot of people, there was a storm, a lot of people died. So this journalist was with them, and he wrote the story, right? So he, he just um, observes, he's with them climbing, and at 7,000 meters, it's called the death zone. You can barely breathe. I, got, I was in the Himalayas. I got as high as like 5,000 meters. Believe me, it's hard to breathe. But 7,000 meters is like very, very difficult. And it's excruciating. So he looks at these people in agony. 
And he asked, like, why, why are we putting himself as well? Why are we putting ourselves through this? Right? Like, what motivates people to do that? Right? I had a friend that I told him I want to go to the Himalayas. He said, I don't understand. Why don't you just go in a room and have him pump the air out? Right? <laughs> so I didn't have a good answer, but I still went. But um, so, so he said, Krakauer sort of um, observes, he said he thinks that people are looking for a moment of grace. Right? So I think like, through physical labor, there could be a moment of loss of self-consciousness. And that's like a peak moment when you're just there. Like the moment you're saying to yourself, I'm there, you're not there anymore. Right? But like through, because the physical is connected to the consciousness, you can like strip away the self-consciousness through the physical labor, and you're just there. So, so maybe that's what the Levites need that, need that, right? Since sometimes, I'm continuing, since sometimes it is not possible for a person to purify their heart without enduring physical labor for God. Okay? They were concerned, and the tribal heads were concerned, that perhaps this compassion was a product of their nature. You see, they feel compassion. And this is a very important idea. It's not, it, it doesn't stop there. They didn't react um, reflexively. They felt compassion, they did something. They stopped and they contemplated. And what did they contemplate? They contemplated themselves. Because we're used to, in, in a tradition which is built around texts and interpretation, so we talk about interpreting texts all the time, right? But the person, is also the text. You have to look at yourself as a text. So if I'm feeling a, a deeply felt conviction of compassion, I have to say that's a text. I have to interpret that. Right? So I, say, I have to say, like, what is that about? Right? So they're looking at themselves as if they're a text. And they want to know if the compassion that they feel, is that God speaking to them? Is that God coming to them from the inside? Or is it just who they are? Because remember, we paint, this is why I belabor the, the passages in the beginning. Because these people, we know they're compassionate people. So that's just who they are. So they feel compassion. So they want to know now, but there's no command from God. So is the compassion that I feel, is this the command from God that I've been waiting for in order to do something? Or maybe it's just me. And then I can't do it because I don't know because these people, my compassion might be misplaced because they have to do labor and I can't deprive them of that. Okay? So that's their concern. They were concerned that perhaps this compassion was a product of their nature. And in a situation where one displays compassion which God does not desire, that compassion is called compassion of the evildoers is cruelty. Right? sometimes misplaced compassion, even though it might be um, with, with, with good intent, but since it may be naive and misplaced, it can actually lead to evil things. Right? So their compassion could deprive the Levites of what was necessary for them in order to be able to carry the Mishkan. Because the Mishkan must get to Eretz Yisrael. There's no, the Mishkan cannot become like an auto graveyard in the middle of the desert where it just got dropped off someplace and was left. Because the, the Mishkan, you have to understand what the Mishkan symbolizes. He's not going to talk about that here, but this is when he thinks about the Mishkan. The Mishkan is heaven and earth, right? The Mishkan is like creation. The Mishkan is a microcosm. It's God dwelling in the, in the cosmos is encapsulated in what the Mishkan is. That's why, for example, we talk about the 39 categories of forbidden actions on, on Shabbat are derived from the 39 categories of what they did in order to construct the Mishkan, right? You can't build on Shabbat because they, used, they built in the Mishkan. You can't dye fabrics on Shabbat because they dyed fabrics to make the Mishkan. You can't write on Shabbat because they used to label the various beams to know how to put it together after they took it apart. So they used to do that on Shabbat. You can't carry on Shabbat because they used to carry the beams, right? So you have all these things. So why, what's the parallel? Shabbat is God's creation. The Mishkan is our creation. 
but it's modeled after God's creation. There's much more to talk about this, and if I ever come back here sometime, I could talk about that for two hours, right? But, but that's how he's looking. The Mishkan is the cosmic sanctuary. The, the, the religious anthropologists write about this. If you're interested in reading, for example, Mircea Eliadi, who was not Jewish, who has founded comparative religion in America in the last generation, so he writes about it, the celestial temple. Right? The, cele- the temple is a microcosm of heaven. Right? It's really heaven and earth. There's no option for the, for the Mishka not to be carried. And if the, if the heads of the tribes interfere with that, right, that's really dangerous. Because everything around the Mishkan is dangerous. Right? So they don't know. But on the other hand, they feel compassion. And these poor Levim are going to have to schlep in the desert. You can call this piece schlepping in the desert, right? So they're going to have to schlep in the desert. So what do they do? Right? So they got a problem. Okay? They have a problem. Okay? And that's what he means when he says that when one displays compassion where God does not desire, so it turns into cruelty. It's not only cruelty towards the Levim, towards the Levites, from whom they would be depriving a spiritual growth, they could jeopardize the entire enterprise, right? Okay. So then what, how do you get out of this? Now, I don't know, you ever read, um, I had a Russian phase when I was like 20 years old. I read a whole bunch of Russian novels. You ever read The Idiot by Dostoevsky? So in the beginning, he describes this thing, how he hates people of action because they're not, um, they're not conflicted. He's like all conflicted, like he romanticized being torn apart, right? So he says, like if you, if you understand the depth of things and you see it this way, you see it that way, you become paralyzed. And he always had envy and he couldn't stand the people that just act, right? They're not, they're not complicated. You want to do something, you do something, right? And he hates that because he only hates things, right? That's the greatness of Dostoevsky. He feels things extremely deeply, right? Mostly negative feelings, but they're still very deep. Right? So um, that's my impression that I'm left with. I'm not giving a thing of what I think about Dostoevsky. I haven't read it in a long time. So that's being stuck. That's being stuck in the indecision and in the conflict. Is there a way out of it? Okay? So now he's going to point to a way out. Okay? That is why, he continues, it is fitting that two tribal leaders should bring one wagon together. I remember we said that, there should, that two bring one. So how does this fit in? Because two people that take action together, God concurs with them. What does that mean? If it's just my subjective feeling, right? There's no word of God. We have to just think. We're not used to thinking about, like, hearing the word of God, right? But if you're in a situation where that's the mode of existence, and that's the portrait that the Torah paints of the desert, right? So then I have some sort of subjective experience that there's something wrong. There should be a word of God, but there isn't. But I have this subjective experience, but it's just me. So who am I? Right? So that's where collaboration comes in. Right? It's two tribal leaders bring one oxen. Okay? And that's what he means when he says, if two people take action together, God concurs with them. Okay? It's, so he's saying what happened, let's like flesh it out a little bit. It's as if the head of the tribe of Reuven said to the head of the tribe of Shimon, look at all this stuff the Levim are going to have to schlep. We should do something to help them. And the head of the tribe of Shimon said, you know, I was thinking the same thing. Right? So that makes it more than just subjective. Right? The Indians have a term for this. It's called intersubjectivity. Right? Namely, It's not objective in the sense that there was no word of God explicitly, but it's not just me. Like, we're sitting around the table, and we have the same subjective experience. It's not, it doesn't make it objective, but it gives it more gravitas than purely subjective. That's intersubjective. We together have a subjective experience, right? So that's what he's talking about, okay? So when they, because they're not sure they gain confidence and conviction from the collaboration. An ox from each leader. Okay, now this is important. So you would think, okay, now that the 12 people saw that their intuition, 
the 12 leaders of Israel, saw that their intuition led them to the same conclusion, and, they could re- and that teaches them right, that this is what God wants, right? that God concurs with them. If it was just them, then maybe if it was just individual, maybe because I'm a compassionate person, so it's my compassion and it's misplaced. Because okay? I always have to doubt myself. But since it's all of us, I can be certain enough and that's maybe all you ever get in life, is certain enough to do something, okay? So once I, I'm certain enough, so why not bring a 1,000 oxen? Why not bring a, like, okay, now we're gonna automate the entire process because we're supposed to help them. So no, one ox for each leader because even after you've reached a sufficient level of certainty to move, literally to move, right? You can't stop doubting yourself. You haven't resolved the question. You're just doing the best you can. So that's what he says. If you you grasp the minimal, then you have grasped something. In other words, there's this phrase in Hebrew, which he's alluding to in the Hebrew, tafasta mu'at tafasta, tafasta merubeh lo tafasta. If you grab the minimal, it's like Ocam's razor, right? You only take the most minimalist explanation, right? So I know that we need to help. That we got from our intersubjective experience. But I still don't know because I didn't hear the explicit word of God. So I have to tread carefully. So I will bring two to show that. Each two leaders bring one, one wagon. That conveys the collaboration and the intersubjectivity. But after that, it's minimalist. Every leader now will bring one ox, not more, right? So that's sort of moving forward out of this place of uncertainty of how do I read this compassion that I experience? Is it me or is it God in me? Right? That's an assumption, right? That it could be, that it could actually be God in me. But I don't, I never really know 100%. But I know enough to move forward, but carefully, okay? It's a lesson in caution because it's dangerous territory, okay? The leaders did not wish to rely upon their own intuition, right? But when they saw that their comrades agreed with them, they understood that this was the will of God, okay? Now, okay, when Moses saw this, okay, now we're coming to Moses, right? Because remember, it says in the passage, in the middle of this, God comes to Moshe and says, accept it from them. Right? So now he's focusing on that. Okay? So when um, Moses saw this, he was dumbstruck, for he thought that the word was revealed to them without his knowledge. He's the one, right? You see what's happening? He, he's like fleshing out. It really is in the passages. Like Kissinger used to say, he probably still says he's still alive. In Yiddish they say, right? He's still alive. Um, he used to say that in foreign relations, sometimes an argument has the additional virtue of being true, right? So I would like adapt that and say, and uh, sometimes a Hasidic Russia has the additional virtue of being pshat, right? Sometimes, uh, you know, it's actually, this is not, flying off the handle, there's actually a pretty close reading of the text, right? Because we see that the oxen and the wagons were brought to the threshold of the Mishkan and not admitted, and at that point, God has to tell Moshe to accept it, right? So he's like trying to unpack it. Okay, what happened there to Moshe, right? So Moshe, when he sees the, when he sees the animals and the wagons, he's dumbstruck because he realizes they were talking behind his back, right? There was, a, there was obviously some sort of collaboration that went on. It's like you're the chairman of the board, and you're sitting there, and, they cu- and, and your board sits around the table, and they've already, like, discussed things, and you're like, hello, did something happen here? Like, they were talking, right? And they give you, like, sort of conclusions that they've reached. Like, were you talking to each other? Why wasn't I part of that conversation, right? So Moshe is the, usually, and this is, this is amplified many times, because Moshe is the one that God speaks to. And he's the one that conveys God's word to the people. And then there's this, there's this initiative coming from the people. But everything in the desert is from God. So did God speak? Moshe doesn't know what's going on. 
Moshe represents the institution which carries out the word of God, which instructs the word of God. And then there's this intuition and initiative that comes from the people, and Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't know what to do with it. That's the conflict. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So, and he thought that maybe God spoke to them without his knowledge. Until God said to him, accept these from them. Now, this is very important. I want to read this in Hebrew, and then I'm going to read it in English, because this has to do with how closely he reads the text. Okay? Um, he says, the, the, in the Hebrew, it's the next to the last line. Um, Hashem kach me'itam. Take it from them. Now, what is, accept it from them. What does that mean in the simple, straightforward reading? Is accept it from them. They brought it, accept it from them. But he reads it, that is to say that it was from them. So he's putting a comma. This is how he's um, being doresh. This is how he's explaining the verse. Accept it, comma, it's from them. Right? Not accept it from them, but accept it, it's from them. Right? Meaning their initiative. Don't think, this is his answer, kach me'itam. I did not speak to them. They understood this by themselves. Right? And that's why you should accept it. Nonetheless, accept it from them. Since they have divined my true will, that such was my will that they should bestow an ox from each leader and a cart for every two. What's he saying here? God now has to navigate something very delicate. What does God want, so to speak? Right? It's very hard to talk about what God wants, right? So we're all talking. When I say God wants, I mean as a manner of, in a manner of speaking, right? What does God want? God wants that they should understand themselves that they have to help the Levian. He wants to bring out their compassion. Right? So the moment he, if he tells them, help the Levian, then he's defeated the purpose of bringing out their compassion. It's as if, you know, if, if I bring, if my wife tells me I have to bring flowers home for Shabbos, then I'm finished already, right? Because I have to understand myself that I should bring flowers. The moment some, your spouse tells you, do this for me, right? Do this for me because, to show me that you love me so that I can't do it to show you I love you. I'm doing it because you told me so, right? So this is a catch-22, right? So God has to navigate that. Right? God needs or wants the heads of the tribes to access their compassion for the Levium. And that's why he can't tell them. Right? But, when the, what, but what the Levium actually do sense is very delicate. What they do sense, that's what they sense. Their compassion is the will of God. Because God wills that they should have the compassion without him telling them so. And that's what they sense. So at the end of the day, their compassion is the will of God. It comes together. If I say that they're, what is their interpretation of themselves? Is it the will of God or is it them? The answer is yes. Right? There's a paradox here. Right? Their, their own compassion is the will of God. And that's how God wants it. So because they're spiritually sensitive, they sense all of that. Right? So God says to Moshe, take it. Because it's from them because it's their compassion and I want their compassion, right? But it's only compassion in a sense because it's risky. They took a chance, right? They took a chance. They didn't know, but they didn't take, but they were humble enough to say, I don't know. That's why that gave them pause, right? But at the same time, they didn't say, well, that's enough. I don't know, so I'm not going to do anything. They didn't absolve themselves of the responsibility that that compassion commanded, right? So what moves them is to collaboration. Right? And in the collaboration, it's enough to move forward. Right? And all that becomes a revelation of the will of God. Right? So if you're going to take this to today, right? we can have, you can have conflicts with what you think is right and what authority, whether it's religious authority or other authority, or other authority commands you. So how do you navigate that? 
right? It's complicated, right? You have to be able to measure what is the severity of the case, how serious is this, right? And correlated with the severity of the case, what type of collaboration do I need? Do it, is, is my own feeling enough? Is the feeling around the people around this table enough? Maybe I need 1,000 people to agree with me for something that's, maybe I need a million people to agree with me, right? So you don't know. Or maybe you need one other person to agree with you, right, to move, right? It becomes a very, it's very difficult to draw rules about when you can bend the rules. There are no rules for when you can bend the rules. It's a paradox, right? So that, that's, what he's, that's what he's grappling with here, right? What happened with Moses and the leaders in the desert is a paradigm for negotiating human intuition, refined intuition, at, when it comes up against structure, whether it's, in, in this case, it's religious structures, but it could be any structure or hierarchy. How do you navigate that, right? The answer is collaboration and caution, right? But without fear, because you've got to move forward. Yeah, that's it. Let's take time for some questions. Um, and if you wouldn't mind repeating the question back. Oh, sure. I've got many questions, but I'll, I'll <laughs> start first, unless nobody's prepared to ask anything. Yeah. So would you interpret this? As, as, um, I'm just want to look up the words. God um, was pleased, or you know, I, I don't remember the exact words. That yeah. The people were collaborating. It made him. I get the impression it made him happy. So to speak. People were getting along. So in today's world, would you interpret this to mean God's will is that we should all get along? Uh, I'll repeat the question. Um, I'll try to. Um, make, tell me if this, if this is your, if this is your, you know, that it seems what God here is, is, is convey, in this narrative, God is conveying care for the people. And, and you're saying, does God want, God's will is that everyone should get along, the way you put it, right? Um, I think fundamentally that's true, but I think it's deeper than that. It's not a sort of an easy, we should all get along type of thing, right? It, it's, it's much more um, weighty than that because there's risks. You can say, what's the risk? You know, we should all get along. That's nice. Everybody says we should get along, right? But there, there's a real conflict here which should not be missed, which, um, which has to do with how you proceed, right, in such an instance, right? Because you have, on the one hand, you're carrying heaven and earth through the desert, and that has to happen. And then you, have, then you have a potential interference with that. And that has to be negotiated. They have to negotiate with themselves first, right? Of course, the, the compassion is about, in this particular instance, is about caring for the Levine, right? There are instances where the compassion is actually not appropriate. Sometimes maybe God doesn't want that, right? You don't know, right? Saul, King Saul, in the book of Samuel, was punished for having compassion for the Amalekites. Right? So that God didn't want that compassion. That's a whole separate issue about what was wrong with this compassion and what you see from the way he behaved, that the compassion had, was tainted with self-interest. But that's a different discussion. So it's not that everybody should necessarily get along, but that people have to be in touch with their, with their, with their sentiments and their intuitions and look at them and analyze them and say, where is God in this in order to move forward? think that. And when it comes out that the outcome of that is that we should get along, then that's the outcome. But that's not always the outcome. Yeah. So um, earlier you talked about um, rabbinic um, ordination in the Orthodox movement uh, okay. with men and women. So how did you navigate that tradition and not change? Thank you. So you were asking how did I, in giving ordination to men and women together, how, how did I navigate that change? So I was actually thinking about this, about this piece. And um, you know, the tradition is, there, there wasn't a tradition of giving smicha to women in, in Jewish tradition. They just went out in the tradition, right? There's no real um, legal halachic barrier 
But there is a question of tradition, and that carries weight. Tradition definitely carries weight. Okay? Um, but then, on the other hand, you can almost say there's a human rights issue, right? That people who have similar qualifications and have gone through the same process should get the same recognition. And I felt that very deeply. So if it was just me, I would say, look, it can't be me against the tradition, right? So that's why I actually seeked out collaboration, right? And um, the people that I spoke to agreed with me, and that gave me the confidence to move forward on this. I followed this model exactly as I understood it. That's the risk that I take. I was going to ask, so were there consequences to you? Uh, whatever. I don't want to talk about me. <laughs> okay. So. Well, no, but I, but I think uh, the consequence for me, I don't want to talk about me. That's the answer. Well, I don't know, but I, but I think it's important. If you're talking about navigating change or tradition, then, then what are the consequences for that navigation? And, and what is the resistance to the change? Because, you know, I don't know. I think God is the God of change. I think God created everything to change. Good. You're, you follow Heraclitus. I agree. I'm with you on that, actually. But you follow Heraclitus. Well, I don't you. know. I, I think you don't You know, the basic, the basic foundational element is fire. That's Heraclitus, because you never step into the same river twice. And a well, student of his said, you don't even step into the same river nature. once. What? And everything changes in nature. Right. I agree. I agree. I agree with you more than you know. No, right? No, I, <laughs> they remind me the next time I come, I'll teach that piece. Okay. How, yes, change. Yes. So I, I think it's important to understand. So you navigate change or tradition, and, and in the moment of navigation, what is the consequence? Different types of changes have different type of consequences. You know, the, the resistance to change is also something which is natural. Religion or, any, or society is not only about change, right? The changes somehow happen within a structure, right? If everything breaks loose, then there's no transmitting anything to the future, right? Civilization is built upon transmitting from one generation to the next, right? So you have to navigate. In a sense, let's take a, let's take a biblical image, right? You talk about the bush which is on fire. The, but there's a bush which is on fire, right? It's not just fire. There's a bush that's on fire. There's something there. There's some sort of form in this constant change, right? So that's the navigation, there's no good answer for that, right? So I have uh, sympathy for those people who criticized what I did. I understand where they're coming from. And I think we have to, I tried to address that, but okay. So, but I feel confident enough, enough to move forward anyway. So not only for you, but were there consequences for the women you ordained in the, in the navigation? Yeah, they became rabbis. <laughs> but, that's, yes, they, they, were, they became rabbis, but what does that mean for them in it, the navigation of this change? So they have the title rabbi. And they're active in their, in their areas. They're active in the areas that gave them greater gravitas. Um, yeah, and helped them. You had a question? It's, it seems to me that evil collaboration is when it, it doesn't benefit man. It benefits me. It benefits some other purpose for it. It, or it goes against a prescribed action, Aaron's sons. What, you know, their sacrifice went against the prescribed method of, of doing the sacrifice. The alien fire, Saul, that you mentioned. That, those collaborations have, I don't want to say an evil intent, but... but Didn't work. Well, but they, but they work for the benefit of, of somebody else. How so? But if I'm, if I'm told not to do something, specifically by... Hashem, and I go against his word, I should be punished. Right. I don't necessarily believe right, that right. is the right punishment. But, right, okay. okay. You know, in Saul's case, as you mentioned, you know, his collaboration had, was for, in part for his own benefit. Right. But this collaboration was strictly for somebody else's benefit. Right, this was they, pure. They got nothing out of it. Correct. Which is what I think uh, you know, allowed it to be acceptable. Because there was... It was uh, you know, truly from the heart. Correct. It was not for any other purpose. Right. Right. Um, I agree with you. What you're saying, I'm just going to repeat your question. What you're saying is that th we have to distinguish between different types of, talk about in terms of uh, 
successful or unsuccessful introspection, right? Where the case of Saul, um, he was tainted it, the, as opposed to um, the case here of the tribal leaders, which was purely altruistic. So that wasn't exactly a question. I just summarized what you said. And yes, I agree with you. In other words, there's part of the process. When, it, when you talk about collaboration, collaboration is just an, it's very funny to talk about this way, it's an external form of, um, of introspection. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like it's trying to understand yourself. So I talk to other people, and if I see that they feel the same way, then I can have confidence in myself, right? So it's sort of an exterior um, introspection. It's like a funny idea, right? But um, and if you look carefully, and, and of course, the Nisim, the, head, the tribal heads, were purely altruistic, right? Whereas if you read the story of Saul, I actually wrote a piece about this in the forewords a couple of months ago. If you read the, the piece about, if you read the story of Saul, it's clear that he had ulterior motives. Now he may have fooled himself, he wasn't an evil person. My read of Saul is that he wasn't evil. He just wasn't rigorous enough with himself. Whereas, because the, the, then the Bible goes on to say that he saw or that he had mercy on the king of Amalek and all the flocks, and he was afraid of the and he was afraid of his own people. So it became he wanted to be popular, and he and there was all this wealth that he could make himself popular with the people because he had a bit of an inferiority complex coming from the youngest tribe, right? So all that got mixed in with the compassion that he felt. So since he didn't work that out. Right? So his compassion was false, right? And that's why he suffers for it. Right? That's his fatal flaw. Right? The fatal, if you look in Greek terms, right? His fatal flaw is his compassion, right? Because it's not, um, it's not clarified. Um, this is kind of complex. Yeah, this whole thing is kind of complex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's see if I can break it down a little bit. I understood you to be making a distinction a few minutes ago between tradition and halakha. Between tradition and the halakha? No, tradition. Tradition versus halakha. Tradition being basically what men have followed for generations, halakha being some kind of expression of God's will. Maybe interpreted. Okay. Some sort of expression. And I understood your comment to be tradition is needed because otherwise everything just flies off. And, and that makes sense too. But here's my problem, and it's a problem that sort of aligns me, I think, with you versus your critic. And that is tradition is a starting point, it isn't an ending point. Right. I agree with you. It's the place we are. Mm -hmm. and we have to acknowledge where we are, we have to understand where we are, right. so that we can then get to the next place. Right. Um, and if, if that's the case, then tradition is just helpful in that it allows us to get to the next place. That it, it's, it's a necessary condition for progress, but it's not sufficient in any way. And I think people we might call traditionalists are trying to make the move that it's both necessary and sufficient. It's ah, okay. Edmund Burke. I, I see what you're saying. Edmund Burke, we've tried it out. We've gone through historical experiences for thousands of years, and here's where we are, so this is passed. All right. Okay. So what you're defining as traditionalist, I'm just going to summarize what you said and then tell you my response to that, right? You'll tell me if this is not what you're saying. Um, that a traditionalist would say the tradition is the last stop, right? And you experience what I'm saying is tradition is where you start from and then you move forward. So I w that's not exactly how I would characterize it. See, there's something I want to talk about the meta-tradition, 
Right? There's a tradition about tradition, if that's what I mean. Right? And the tradition about tradition is that it changes. Right? So it's, in, it's traditional that, that I'm here with my tradition, and then I move forward. That's the tradition. The tradition is that we move forward. So, in other words, it's not traditional to say, this is the last stop. Right? Right. Those people that said, this is the last stop, right, we left them behind. Right? Those were the, the tzdokim in the time of the second period, of the second temple, that they were stuck on the temple ritual. And they were the opponents to the sages of the Talmud, as they said, this is the tradition, and this is where it stops. Right? The, what we have is what uh, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg characterized to me in a conversation. We have an interpretive tradition. I mean, part of the tradition is that you interpret. That's the Jewish part, right? You say it like this, I'll say it like that, right? The tradition is that it changes. So it's the fire and the, if you want to take the metaphor, it's the fire and the bush, right? That's right. That's right. Okay. So um, my, my, my question is about uh, the value of mitzvah. Uh-huh. I mean, the high majority of the Jewish people today reject the notion of of divine command, essentially. Uh, okay. Um, and a small portion accepts. Um, and I wonder, I mean, we want to have Gadol Mitzvah, Gadol Mitzvah, Mitzvah, yeah. That great, it's better to be commanded than not be commanded uh, to do something. So, I mean, once we have this whole enterprise of intuition and the importance of this inner world, how do we understand the value of divine command and rabbinic law as so central um, to what we're a part of? Um, you know, I think asked, asked differently. I'm not, this is not a question of truth. Do we believe that there was a commander or or not? But now that it's here and it's sort of a part of what we, of what we are, um, how, how, how is that deeply valuable? I think that ideally, right, and here I'm actually following the teachings of the, the Me'ashiloach, then from, from, from elsewhere. Um, ideally, it should all be interiorized. But you shouldn't have, like, ideally, you shouldn't have to tell you what to do. I shouldn't have to tell you, like, some, for some things, we understand that. If I have to tell you not to kill someone, right, that's, that's not good that I should have to tell you. There's certain things you should, have to, you should understand by yourself. And if the only reason you don't kill someone is because it says in the Ten Commandments that, and you're afraid you're going to burn in hell, then that does not make you a very edified human being, and I don't want you as a guest on my Shabbos tables, right? So certain things we acknowledge, but you're supposed to understand them by yourself, right? And the fact that a historian would look at the law books and see that there are laws prohibiting murder and rape and da da da, they would say there was bad stuff going on in this society, right? Because if they all, if it was a utopia, then there wouldn't be any laws. Then they would have understood, right? So we don't live in a utopia. So you need a sense of being a subject to something which is greater than you. And that's authority. That's the, I was talking about a shift, I think there needs to be a shift away from authority towards towards um, refined intuition. And that's what this is about, right? Because Moses represents the authority here. The word of God is the authority. And here's an elevation of the intuition to the level of a divine revelation. That's what happened in this piece, right? But I don't think, I do not advocate, to be very clear, I do not advocate an abolition of authority. The balance needs to change. A person needs to feel obligated to something, right? So that when, now ideally, it should all be interior, and people should live in the presence of God. And if people lived in the ultimate presence of God in a, in a, in a level of God consciousness, that would be messianic times, right? And in a sense, then there would be no necessity for the law. Then they would do the law as Enamitsuva Baosa, right? And that would have to be a higher level, right? So in the Talmud statement, I think, which you were referring to, that it's greater, the, the, um, it's greater to be commanded and to perform rather than not to be commanded to perform, is stated for this type of reality, right? That when, when you bend your will to the command, there's a religious value to that, right? But ultimately, you shouldn't have to bend your will. Your will should be the command. 
And then the element, the commandedness of the tradition would disappear. But that's sort of a, that's sort of a, 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 a messianic days, an apocalyptic vision, if you will. Very good. Thank you very much. Okay. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.